Ready to get started. Our class joining us by streaming is online right now. Welcome those of you streaming with us tonight. We have a great group here in the sanctuary, and thank you for joining us uh, at home by streaming. It's good to be together in God's house. We are going to get rolling in this next lesson as we work our way through the entirety of the Bible. And of course, we're hitting the high points and the mountaintops and getting that thread that, tr- that ties the Bible together. So I'm glad you join us tonight. Uh, we may even have some out in our parking lot with an FM signal, but however you join us, we are one family in the body of Christ. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you have your Bible with you as you open it with me tonight. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, our Lord, our God, thank you for these moments that we gather before you to open your word tonight, Father. Thank you for the continuity of your love letter to us, Father. Thank you for the Old Testament as it teaches us that it is the compass that shows us who Jesus is, who describes him in so many ways. And then as the New Testament opens, Lord, we see the revelation of the Son of God coming to us as a baby in a manger, Lord. So we have already crossed that mark. But just thank you for the way that your word is tied together, Lord. It is a consistent showing to us of your love, of your message of love, of your message of grace that saves sinners. Father, thank you that you point out throughout your word that we do sin and we do fall short and we can't fulfill the Ten Commandments and we can't live up to your perfect righteousness. And Father, when we realize that there are so many things that we cannot do, you step in the gap so that we can be forgiven. And Father, we know it is by your plan and by your action that we become children of God. Tonight, Lord, I thank you that I am joined by children of God. I pray, Father, that if there is one joining us tonight or in a further study down the road, Lord, who does not know you, that even a study like this, Father, would give them what they need to understand how much Jesus loves them and... uh, They can come to Christ as Lord and Savior in a moment's notice by saying yes to you, yes to your cross and to your empty tomb for giving them life, Lord. So bless us, Father. I pray for those of us who are believers that you draw us closer to your love and closer to your word as we understand how it flows to us, Father. So bless us tonight and bless this study, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, tonight as we get rolling, we are uh, under the general heading of The Savior Comes to Us. Uh, This is Lesson 21. Uh, We are going to deal with the Gospels tonight. We're going to take a special look at the Gospel of Mark. We're going to take a look at John the Baptist and uh, also the 12 disciples. Uh, And as we look at these mountaintops of Jesus beginning his ministry, uh, and as we see the biographies of Jesus in the four Gospels, uh, my prayer is that you and I will be drawn closer as a student of God's Word, that we will want to learn it, and that we can understand the consistency of the message of God to us. Now, in the last lesson, lesson number 20, uh, we opened the New Testament We crossed that line from the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, to the New Covenant, the New Testament of God's Word to us. Uh, And of course, uh, as we open the New Testament, the pivotal point of the entire Bible is right 
here as we're studying it now, as we move from that old covenant to the new covenant. And it is all based on the coming of God's Son, the Savior. Uh, God's plan of salvation was not planned at a moment's notice. It was actually planned according to the Word of God before He laid down the foundations of creation. So God had the method and the way that He was going to save people even before people were created by His divine will. That's an amazing point to me. I want to remind you that all of the Old Testament patriarchs, all of the Old Testament prophecy, The sacrificial system of the Old Testament point to the Savior. Everything about the Old Testament, Jesus Christ is on every page of your Old Testament. In some form, some fashion, in some way, some prophecy, we see a picture of Jesus Christ in every page of the Old Testament. It is one huge compass that points us to the true north of a Savior that is coming for us, the Messiah who would come. Uh, And, of course, we are now working in the beginnings of the New Testament, and the Gospels reveal that that Savior, that Messiah, is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, Uh, revealed to us. Now, I want you to uh, remember, uh, and you might want to write this uh, reference down, Matthew 5, verse 17. Jesus makes a very important point uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, think not that I am come to destroy the law, or if this will make more sense to you, think not that I have come to destroy the Old Testament. I have not come to destroy the law that's revealed to us in the Old Testament pages. I have not come to destroy the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill And so that's exactly what Jesus says about the entirety of the law, the entirety about the Old Testament, is I've not come to set it aside, I've come to fulfill it. I've come to be the fulfillment of all the prophecy, of all the sacrificial system, of all the pictures that we see of the patriarchs, I've come to fulfill the Bible's word. So Jesus fulfilled all the laws and prophecies of the Old Testament, and that's why your Old Testament is still a very important part of your Bible. While it has been fulfilled, it gives us the history, it gives us the thread of God's love that brings us the Savior. It teaches us about the coming of the Savior. It gives us such a a beautiful picture of Him as we see the prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament. And that's why it's still important. We don't practice a lot of the Old Testament right now. Let me give you a few examples of that which we do not practice that's revealed to us in the Old Testament, and the Israelites practiced it in the day. But, of course, the Old Testament shows us the sacrifices of animals for sin. It was an imperfect sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. We don't practice sacrificing animals anymore. We don't have a sacrificial system here at the church. We don't sacrifice animals on the grounds here. That's because the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament points to the final sacrifice who is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. We don't, we don't practice sacrificing any longer. Uh, it's called for in the Old Testament, but Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, so we don't need animal sacrifices anymore. Jesus is the Lamb of the final sacrifice. The Old Testament gives dietary laws. Now, I can say this much. When you read the dietary laws, say in Leviticus, you will find out that they're pretty healthy laws. I'm not saying that they won't benefit us. You could live by those laws, and I think it may benefit your health. 
but we don't have to practice them as the law of God anymore. God gave the dietary law to Israel to set them apart as his chosen people. They were a special people in the landscape of the world, and God gave them a special dietary system to express their separateness from the rest of the world. So, the rest of the world may have had permission to eat just about anything that uh, could be eaten, and yet God says, Israel, I have a very specific dietary law for you because it is expressing your separateness from the rest of the world. The dietary law of the Old Testament is not needed any longer to establish holiness. Now, we might live by it. You might practice it. There's no harm in practicing it, but it will not establish holiness as God established holiness through the Israelites. Why is that? We don't need a diet to establish holiness because we have a Savior who now establishes holiness in our life. Jesus Christ fulfills the dietary law of the Old Testament. Thirdly, all the prophets of the Old Testament unite to one singular call, come to God. So many times with Israel, their call was come back to God. You have left Him. You have left uh, His ways. You've left walking in uh, His righteousness. And so come back to God in the way that you love Him and serve Him and be faithful to Him. So the voices of the prophets have now been fulfilled. Yes, we are to come to God, but we come to God through His Son, Jesus Christ. So the prophet's voices have been fulfilled in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Well, with that opening, we are going to go ahead with lesson number 21 tonight, which deals with several topics. We're going to begin with the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is, of course, the second gospel in your Bible. It is the shortest gospel It's the shortest biography of Jesus, and I am certain uh, that it was also the very first biography written about Jesus' life. Mark serves as an outline, as, as a template for Matthew and for Luke as well. Those three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you've missed this note, I've said it several times, they're called synoptic Gospels. Synoptic simply Boiled down means similar. They're similar gospels. There's much similar information shared in those three. It's shared with a different mindset. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote from different points of view, different aspects of their own personal faith, but they share much of the same information from their particular point of view. Uh, so these, these similar gospels uh, have a similar content, but it comes through a, a very different man in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark is an interesting character in the Bible. Maybe many of you know about the history of Mark, but he's, he's an, a neat biblical character. The other biblical names for Mark who wrote the gospel are Marcus or John Mark. Uh, his mother is described in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, as a Jewish convert Uh, and uh, she opened her home to Christians. So Mark is from the Jewish nation. His mother is Jewish, uh, and he he, uh, came from a a household of faith as uh, his mother opened her home for Christians. Of course, you know, buildings like this did not exist at all. Church buildings were not even begun until somewhere around the 3rd or the 4th century uh, after the church's establishment. So the church largely met in homes. 
Well, Mark's mother was one of those people who allowed the church to meet in her home. Uh, Mark is also the one who went on Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. This is where his life gets very interesting. Mark starts off the mission journey with Paul and with Barnabas, but part of the way through the journey, something happens that he goes AWOL. He goes absent without leave. He leaves the team and goes home to Jerusalem. It really is not specific about what happened. Maybe the, the pressures or the rigors of that mission trip were so intense that Mark just did not want to take it anymore. But for whatever reason, he left the mission team, that first mission journey of Paul, and he went home. And it infuriated the great missionary Paul that John Mark left the team. And when he and Barnabas were organizing mission trip, mission journey number two, Barnabas, who is the old encourager in the Bible and the, the one who is the, the constant supporter, uh, Barnabas says, Paul, let's give Mark another chance. Let's take him on the second missionary journey. And Paul absolutely disagrees that Mark should go with them. The reference for that is Acts chapter 15, verse 38. Paul just says, I do not want this young man on the team whatsoever. He abandoned us the last trip, so we're not taking him. And Paul and Barnabas had a great uh, contention over Mark. And what happens? Paul and Barnabas separate ways. One goes one direction and one goes the other. The good news is that while it was based on a contention and an argument over this young man, Mark, Paul takes a mission team and goes one direction. Barnabas goes another direction. And what happens? The gospel outreach is doubled. And so God can take an argument and bring something good from it. Uh, Barnabas took Mark with him on that section of the mission trip. And Mark did well. Mark stayed through that trip. And in the end... Uh, the good news is Paul forgave him. Paul commended him uh, and his ministry to others within the church. So it was finally healed over, and that fence was mended later on. But uh, Mark was uh, the point of great contention between Paul and Barnabas there at one point. This same Mark wrote the gospel of Mark. He is very succinct. He is very matter-of-fact in what he writes. Uh, he does not present a genealogy uh, the family lineage of Jesus. As we looked at genealogies last week from Matthew and Luke, Mark does not include a genealogy. So while he may have served as a template for the other two gospel writers, those writers went over his head and put the genealogies in. Mark does not do that. Uh, he also does not give a birth narrative of Jesus the Christ. You will find the birth narratives in the other gospels, but not in the gospel of Mark. His goal as Mark writes his little short gospel, his goal is to present Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the primary servant of God. He came to serve the Father uh, in this world. And so his gospel focuses largely on the deeds of Christ and the healings of Christ. You know, I think I'm saying this correctly, that uh, most of the exorcism and deliverances of demons are listed in the gospel of Mark. Jesus is the healer, and Mark is very uh, pointed to make sure that we understand that he has power over the satanic world, and he has power over demons, and he could take them out of people's lives. 
Uh, he really wants to show the evidence of Jesus' life and present him as the Savior. He doesn't want to do it with any frills. He doesn't want to do it with fancy words. He's not lengthy. He does it in a very short way. So if you want a concise a summary of Jesus' life, Mark's your man. Uh, that might even be a good gospel to begin with just to get that very brief picture of the life of Jesus Christ. And one, one interesting instance in the gospel that I want to bring to your attention tonight, while it comes in a very, very serious moment in the gospels and what's happening, uh, a smile comes to my face when I read this. Uh, at Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas Iscariot, of course, kisses Jesus, reveals him as the one to be arrested. The soldiers surround Jesus. And as the arrest takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane, according to Mark 14, uh, the disciples forsake Jesus and they flee. Why did they flee? Well, obviously, they are believing that they're going to meet the same fate as their Lord, as their master, that they're going to be arrested as well. So the disciples leave the scene. Now, Mark was not one of the 12 disciples. You want to make note of that? Mark is not one of the 12 disciples. But in Mark 14, verses 51 through 52, Mark in his gospel describes a young man And he is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He had followed the group into the garden, and his clothing was a linen cloth. So wrapped around his naked body was nothing more than a linen cloth. And the soldiers laid hands on that linen cloth after they had arrested Jesus. And this young man that Mark talks about in his gospel leaves the cloth behind, and he streaks away naked. And most... Uh, uh, theologians believe, most scholars believe that Mark really is talking about himself, that he was the one who left the linen cloth behind and streaked away out of the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a serious moment, obviously, and yet that, that picture, I can't help but get it out of my mind of this naked man running out of the garden while the soldiers are holding his linen cloth. Okay, with that, we move on to consider another key person Uh, in the Gospels. And we have been working on this person. Streamers, if you are listening in the Gospel of John, uh, you're hearing this as well. But we want to talk about John the Baptist uh, tonight. He is one of the key figures in the beginnings of Jesus' ministry. Uh, As we think about John the Baptist, there is a prophecy in the Old Testament that tells us about John the Baptist's ministry. Write this reference down. It's Isaiah 40. Verse 3, let me read it to you. This is what it says. And in fact, we see uh, John the Baptist quote this about himself. He refers to this passage in Isaiah 40. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And so we see the prophecy of John the Baptist's life. Now, let's look at the fulfillment of that prophecy. So beside Isaiah chapter 40, write this reference down, Matthew 3, 1 through 6. Let me quickly get there and just read this as a sister passage to Isaiah 40. Matthew uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leather girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. So, one of the things that we, we want to make sure that we understand is that John the Baptist did not establish the Baptist church. That's not where we came from. Uh, he really, I guess, the better way to describe this man is John the baptizer. He is the one who does the baptizing of those who had repented of their sin, who were sorry for their sin. Now, I want to remind you that it's not the baptism that you see here. The baptism of John the Baptist was a baptism of sorrow, a baptism of repentance, a baptism of preparation of the heart, but Christ had not come so that people could be saved by his message yet. John the Baptist was pointing to Jesus, pointing to the messenger of Christ who was going to be coming after him, but he was a man of preparation, preparing hearts in sorrow for sin that people would know they'd need a Savior. So John the Baptist the son of Zacharias, the Jewish priest, and Elizabeth. There are two significant things to note here about John the Baptist's life. Uh, I think one of the things that we want to remember, and I'll remind you of this if you're streaming with us tonight and you weren't with me in the last uh, lesson or two, how long was the period of silence from the close of the Old Testament when Malachi wrote his last word? He was the last of the prophets of the Old Testament that we have recorded. How long before the opening of the New Testament did God speak? It took 400 years, four centuries of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The first word from God is spoken uh, to break that silence when he told Zacharias that he was going to have a son. That's a major, major moment in God's word as 400 years of silence is broken when God speaks to the father, the future father of John the Baptist. Now, I'm not going to read this tonight, but I want you to take this reference down and I want you to read it devotionally. It's Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 80. Verses 5 through 80. Read, read Luke 1, 5 through 80. Read it for your devotions uh, sometime soon uh, about how John the Baptist is the fulfillment of God's word to Zacharias, the priest, and to Elizabeth. It's a, it's a wonderful passage of Scripture. Uh, so that's one very significant thing I want to point out about John the Baptist coming. Second significant thing is this. Uh, John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, were cousins. Uh, the reference for that, Luke chapter 1, verse 36. So when you read that passage, you will find that. So John the Baptist and Jesus the Christ were cousins. So why is that important? Because we see a linkage from their very beginnings in the womb. We see a linkage between John the Baptist and Jesus the Christ. They were 
physically, biologically kin, but also they were kin in the message that they were bringing, both of them bringing that message of truth, that message of repentance, that message of salvation, as John points to his cousin Jesus in the fulfillment of the coming of the Christ. So they are bound together, they are kin together biologically as well as their message is tied together as well. John's job was to prepare the way to prepare hearts for the coming of the Savior. And he says over and over, and I love this statement, this this statement of humility, uh, this statement that draws away from himself. He says over and over, uh, I'm nothing more than a voice crying in the wilderness. You don't even have to remember my name, just remember the voice. Remember the voice that is calling you to come to the Savior who is going to be following me. I'm not important. Jesus is important. Remember, as the ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus transitioned, John the Baptist had followers. Jesus began gaining followers. Do you remember John the Baptist saying, I need to decrease and Jesus needs to increase? So more and more, John realized that the fulfillment of his life was taking the limelight off of him and putting it on the Savior, Jesus the Christ. He is the voice crying in the wilderness. He is the finger that is pointing to the Savior, Jesus Christ, in every way. What is John's reaction when Jesus comes to him and asks him to baptize the Son of God? Well, I I love this. It is Matthew chapter 3, verse 14. Write that down. Matthew 3, 14. Uh, John, Jesus comes, oh, let me read verse 13. Cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. And verse 14 says, but John forbade him saying, I have need to be baptized of thee. And comest thou to me, you're coming to me to baptize you when you are the one who truly needs to baptize me. Well, Jesus' baptism was not a baptism of sorrow for sin or forgiveness of sin because Jesus never sinned. But rather, Jesus' baptism was a baptism of obedience. He was following uh, the will of God the Father. He was beginning his ministry. This is the following of God the Father's will at 30 years old, that he's now ready, he is prepared, and he's strong, and he's ready to step into that ministry uh, uh, that uh, the Lord has opened for him. Uh, So John the Baptist is a great character of the Bible as we see his humility and as we see his, uh, his desire to, to fade out of the picture so that Jesus could be the main character of the picture. Uh, he's completely overwhelmed at the baptism. Uh, he realizes he can only uh, baptize repentant sinners, uh, whereas Christ is the one who can actually forgive sin. Uh, the, one of the key statements of John the Baptist is in Matthew 3, uh, verses 11 and 12. Listen to these words, Matthew 3, 11 and 12. He said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Do you remember this past Sunday as I preached on Jesus cleansing the temple? 
when I said to you that the disciples who were newly called had seen a new side to Jesus' life. They had seen the meek and the mild and the loving Jesus, the Christ. But then with the cleansing of the temple, they saw the Lord of judgment and the Lord of righteousness. And it breaks forth in this holy anger as he cleanses the temple, this righteous outbreak of the justice of God as he cleanses the temple grounds of all the merchandise and salesmen and money changers. We have to understand that Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. Jesus, God himself, the revelation of the love of God and the justice of God. And you see that here is in, in John's statement, John the Baptist's statement uh, in Matthew 12, Matthew chapter 3, verse 12, when he says, he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So in other words, don't think that Jesus is going to just say, okay, everybody is universally forgiven. That's not going to happen. The, Jesus Christ is a righteous God. We have to follow him in holiness and righteousness and accept him as Savior because he's going to burn up the chaff. He's going to burn up those who will not come to him. That's precisely what John the Baptist is saying here. He's going to cleanse this world, and we're going to live perfectly with him in faith and in trust. John the Baptist really could be considered the last Old Testament prophet. And the reason I say that to you is that all of the Old Testament revolves around the sacrificial system, bulls and goats and birds and lambs being sacrificed as the substitution for people's sin. But here's the final prophecy of the final sacrifice that will overcome and forgive sin. It comes from John the Baptist. It is in John chapter 1, verse 29. And we have been through this very recently, so you'll probably remember it. But here's the final prophecy of the Old Testament. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. There's the final word that reveals Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, John the Baptist is one interesting man. Uh, so the ministry of Christ begins at this revelation. Uh, of course, Matthew chapter 4, Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 4, all recount Jesus meeting Satan in the wilderness and being tested for 40 days. Uh, and of course, Christ has the, the victory over the, over the tests and the temptations of the devil. Uh, 40 days, Jesus was tempted and was in the wilderness and in the, in the desert. And as he comes out of that testing and he is tried by the fire and he walks away from it victorious over the devil, he begins calling men to follow him. And he is beginning to gather this close circle of 12 disciples. Uh, let me very, very briefly go through a list of the disciples if you want to write these names down. Uh, and uh, let me just give you just a little bit about these disciples. This is from the list from Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 through 4. If you want to go read this list for yourself. Also, there is a list in Mark chapter 3, verses 13, 16 through 19. Mark 3, 16 through 19. And Luke chapter 6, verses 13 through 16. So we see three primary lists of the of the disciples of Jesus Christ. Simon Peter, 
and his brother, Andrew. Remember that Andrew is called first and goes to find his brother, Simon. And so both of these become disciples. Also, James and his brother, John, the sons of Zebedee, fishermen who left their nets to follow Jesus. Now, before I I move further, really out of the 12 disciples, there were three leading disciples. Uh, Andrew is not in that list. Simon Peter Simon Peter seems to be the chairman of the disciples, but James and John also were the three leading disciples, the ones who seemed to accompany Jesus most of all. Uh, So uh, out of the 12, that triumvirate of those three were were somewhat of the leaders of the disciples, Simon Peter, James, and John. And then, of course, there's Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. All right, another disciple is Philip. He is the one who is called in John chapter 1, and he immediately follows Jesus. Uh, no question, no qualm, he follows Christ. Another is Bartholomew. Bartholomew. Uh, another name for Bartholomew is Nathaniel. Uh, Bartholomew is actually not a name. If you remember the sermon about that, uh, when I, was, I preached through this passage in John, Bartholomew, anything that begins with B-A-R, bar, is son of. So Bar, son of uh, Bartholomew, is son of Ptolemaeus. So really it's more of a title than a name. His name is Nathaniel, his given name, Nathaniel. And if you remember, when Jesus called Nathaniel, he's the one who said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So while Philip, this was the two guys right together, when Philip uh, accepts Christ, it is immediate and follows Christ, it's immediate. When Nathaniel is given that opportunity, he has a question. It's not a bad question. It's not a sinful question. In fact, Jesus said, here's a man with no guile in him at all. It's an honest question. Can really, can a Savior come out of Nazareth? Uh, but Nathaniel is, is uh, so Philip and Nathaniel, both of them following Jesus. Then also Thomas. Uh, if you remember, his descriptive name is Didymus. And Didymus, D-I-D-Y-M-U-S. Didymus means twin. So it is quite likely that Thomas had a twin brother. Uh, He is the doubter. Uh, He is the one who expressed doubt about Jesus' resurrection. And, of course, Jesus, uh, in a second meeting, invited him to touch the the places in his hands and his feet to put his hand in his side where the Roman spear went in. Thomas was, is never given us evidence that he required to do that. He said, my Lord and my God. Thomas gave us the greatest uh, surrender to Jesus Christ recorded in the Bible, my Lord and my God. Uh, it's an amazing uh, admission to who God is to him and who his Lord is. Another, Matthew, the tax collector, Uh, He had a tax table in Capernaum and followed Jesus from there. So Matthew is a follower of Jesus. Here Now we're going to get into some who are a little hazier. Uh, James, the son of Alphaeus. Uh, He's also known as James the Less. And he appears four times in the gospel, but only in the list of names. We know nothing more about James the Less or James the son of Alphaeus than the fact that he is listed as one of the 12 disciples. Another, this is the disciple who is said to have three names. One name for him is Labaeus, L-E-B-B-A-E-U-S. 
Another name given to him is Thaddeus. Another name given to him is Jude, J-U-D-E. So he is the disciple who has three names in different places in the gospel. Labaius, Thaddeus, or Jude. We know very little about him. Another is Simon the Canaanite or Simon the Zealot. Z-E-A-L-O-T, Simon the Zealot. Uh, He was one who was very politically oriented. Just the name Zealot tells us that, uh, that he probably was a very fiery character, uh, but uh, we know very little about him as well, very obscure person in the Bible. Simon the Canaanite, Simon the Zealot. And then, of course, the 12th disciple is Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Christ the one who I believe died a lost man, hanged himself, uh, a sad life. And, and, and you know, as we, as we go through these, these words, uh, I can't get too bogged down, but I, I must say this. Here's a man who followed Jesus, the very footprints of Jesus, for, for three years, and he died a lost man. What does that say to us? That says there are people who can sit in a pew for 50 years, There are people who can hear 10,000 sermons over the course of their life. There are people who who can be good people and moral people and and people who are upstanding and faithful to family and all of those things, but they die lost people because they really never surrender to Jesus Christ, their Savior. That's a huge lesson that that Judas Iscariot teaches us. Okay, we have to to move along here. Uh, So Jesus the great teacher, preacher of the truth. Uh, One account of his greatest teaching uh, that's on caring about the poor and being salt and light in this world and loving our enemy and praying and addressing worry and so many issues of life, uh, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. he covers all of these expansive topics. That's amazing. You know, I, I open a book of the Bible. I'm looking at the Gospel of John, and I'm seeing at least 50 sermons. And yet Jesus can preach the Sermon on the Mount covering all of these topics in probably less than 30 minutes. But that's because he's God, and, and he knows how to put those words together. Uh, but he, the Sermon on the Mount is, a, is an amazing sermon. He is also the great healer of the body. He reaches out to the leper, to the blind, to the paralyzed, to the deaf. He heals sicknesses of the soul. He can lift guilt and the burdens off of people's shoulders and take sin away. He can give hope to the hopeless. He can free people from demon possession, which I believe still occurs today. The greatest healing in the universe is the forgiveness of sin and calling us to be sons and daughters and giving to us the promise of eternal life and promising us that he's prepared us a home in heaven. Amazingly, as he called people to walk with him and serve with him, uh, he gave a very stark statement, though, about the way that we are to serve with him. Write this reference down. It's Matthew 10, 22. And it says this, Matthew 10, 22, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. So in other words, what Jesus is telling us is that we are to serve him and there is no turning back. We cannot fall away in fear. 
Uh, even two of Jesus' disciples denied him in critical times. Simon Peter, of course, famously denied him on the nights of Jesus going, night of Jesus going through the trials, uh, coming ultimately to the old rugged cross. And yet Peter was forgiven. Peter was restored. You can read about that restoration in John chapter 21 as Jesus restores him uh, to ministry. But the other denial, Judas Iscariot, denying him as Lord, selling him out to the authorities so that he would be arrested. And I believe he died a lost man. He died and went to hell. Jesus and his team of disciples traveled to preach the word of God. They performed miracles. Let me ask you this as we get closer to the end here. Why did Jesus perform miracles? It was not to pass around an offering plate for a larger offering. He didn't want to be known simply as a miracle worker for that being uh, the only reason that he would work a miracle, but rather his miracles point to the healing power of God. The fact that he has control and he has authority and he has the power to change lives. So the healings show his power, show that he's true, and show that his word can change lives. If he can change the physical body in miraculous ways, his word can change the heart. His word can miraculously call and heal the heart. Finally, Matthew 16, 21, what did he tell his disciples about the future? And this is where we're going to end tonight. Matthew 16, 21, as Jesus speaks to his disciples, he says, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. So Jesus begins preparing his disciples for his death and his resurrection. Did his disciples take it in? No, not well at all. Uh, They couldn't process what Jesus was saying. Uh, And and I I say that non-critically. Can you imagine this point of history where Jesus the Christ is telling you that he's going to die and be raised again on the third day? So the disciples had to wrap their minds around that, and that was not easy. It wouldn't have been easy for you or me. Uh, But that's what the disciples had to come to terms with. Well, as we conclude the lesson tonight, we see the, the Bible's affirmation that Jesus alone is the Messiah. He is the Christ. The Bible leaves no leeway whatsoever that we could pick somebody else to be the Christ, that we could pick somebody else to be the Savior. He is the one way to our holy God. He is the one who came to us. He is the one who calls us to salvation. He is the one who calls us as followers. But that Savior of the world would be killed by a cross, and we will move ahead in that as we go on into the next lessons. As I conclude tonight, I want you to see the continuation of the thread of God's love through the Bible. God's love is expressed in the Old Testament. But as we see the Old, the Old Testament close and the New Testament open, we see the revelation of God's love take on skin in that Jesus the Christ, the Son, God himself, comes to us. And we will continue on as we go to Lesson 22 next week. Streamers, thank you so much for joining us tonight. God bless you. And let's close with a word of prayer here. Father God. 
Thank you for your message to us. Thank you for your word and the beautiful way it comes to us through the gospel writers and uh, through the Old Testament and uh, through the history of the New Testament and the prophets and, uh, and those like Paul who speak your word. Lord, thank you for the continuation that we see through your Bible of your love for us. Bless us tonight. Thank you for allowing us to open your word and allowing it to speak to us. Lead us in your love. And lead us, Father, to remember that we have to take a stand in this world for you. And we are to be courageous and we are to be bold. We are not to expect that the world's going to pat us on the back. But rather, Father, we know that sometimes we're going to be fighting an uphill battle to be a servant of Jesus Christ. Help us to set our minds and our hearts and our sights that we will follow you no matter what. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.